Welcome to Pilates 101, the podcast where our mission is to bring you the latest and most up-to-date information on anything and everything related to the Pilates industry to you to help you grow your dreams and your businesses right now. Good morning, everyone. I'm coming to you here from the APPI headquarters here in London, and it is a very, very interesting time for us right now. Uh, as it stands, we head into lockdown in uh, 24 hours time um, or even less maybe 14 hours time and it's a uh, somewhat confusing time for our industry we've had lots of queries and requests and questions come in to us so i will be addressing those as best i can in a uh, sort of brief special sort of 10 minutes uh here this morning and then we uh, have a great treat for you we're going to bring to you the excerpt from our 2016 conference, which is a Graham Norton-style interview with some of the biggest names in our industry. We'll be talking to uh, Alan Herdman, Michael King, and Suzanne Scott. Uh, this is a sort of uh, interview, uh, shared stage uh, interview that we did at our 2016 conference here in London. And it was a, a great opportunity to chat to some of the biggest names and just hear their stories, their memories, and their view on certain things that were happening in the industry up to that time. Um, of course, since uh, 2016, things have moved on quite a bit and 2020 has been the year that it is for all of us all around the world. Um, before I get on to what's happening here in, in the UK, a big shout out to our followers and our uh, APPI families in, in various countries all over the world. We're all facing our various challenges. To my home country of Australia, and my home state of Melbourne in Victoria, um, you know, a big shout out to you guys. You've been through an enormous time over the last sort of 16 to 18 weeks, and I'm delighted to see that things are starting to ease for you guys. Um, I wish you all the very best coming out of lockdown there, and most importantly, wishing that you all stay well, stay healthy, and that you can all enjoy the summer months where uh, this virus doesn't seem to be as prevalent. So. Um, looking forward to a, a positive few months ahead for you guys in the Southern Hemisphere there. For us here in the Northern Hemisphere, obviously we're going into our winter and it appears that uh, coronavirus enjoys these cooler climates. And so infections are rising, restrictions are increasing and it becomes a very confusing time for our industry. Now, my role here is, I guess, to try and disseminate the information as we have it and pass that on to you guys as best as I possibly can. So let me start um, with where we are. Current guidelines are that we head into lockdown this evening. Now I say current guidelines because obviously it's been debated in the UK Parliament today, but it um, all expects to go through. We have support from both parties and it does look like it's progressing. So what does that mean for us? Well, um, let's start on the positive news. In a very good way, um, the government has clearly seen the need for healthcare services. So all um, clinical-based healthcare services that are linked to um, people's rehabilitation and healthcare needs will continue. So physiotherapy, the profession that uh, I belong to, um, we will continue under the, both the CSP and the government guidance to be able to deliver our services. And that includes our face-to-face -face services and our exercise-based rehab services. Um, which is great news for all of us. So um, for our clinics, we will be uh, continuing with all of our services with our clinical-based staff, uh, our Pilates-based staff um, that don't hold a clinical background or a therapy-based qualification, 
will revert to their online services. And we will be continuing to use the Zoom platform to deliver those. And like many of you out there, we learned an enormous amount in the first lockdown. So we feel you know, really ready, um, set. There's a lot of work obviously that's gone on in the last three days to, to transition to what we need to do, rescheduling classes and sessions and staff hours, etc. But we're all in the same boat. We've all been through it before we're going through it again now so um, I, I hear you and I send out my best wishes to all of you but the difference this time for those of us that come from that allied health background is that we can continue to deliver the services to deliver the, the need for the general public and I feel this is a good move I feel that the need for the country to stay active to stay healthy and for us to get on top of those rehabilitation needs is really really important I also feel passionate that it is our job to continue to relieve the burden on the NHS and by continuing to deliver our services, continuing to offer the professionalism of what we can uh, give to our communities allows us to alleviate, albeit a tiny bit of pressure, but at least some pressure from the NHS. So physiotherapy services continue. Um, please keep in mind that that does mean exercise therapy as well. Exercise is one of the three core skills of physiotherapy and therefore those services can continue as long as obviously there is a clinical need for that, a rehabilitation need that somebody might um, deteriorate in their symptoms if they don't get those services um, and for healthcare needs. Um, and I think that's a, a quite a broad spectrum uh, statement, isn't it? Um, and so I guess you have to be confident in, in what you're doing and focus on what it is that you believe that uh, you, can, you can deliver for your communities. Now there is um, the flip side of that, which is the decision to close our gyms and leisure centres. Um, now you guys have heard me on this podcast before. Um, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinions. I completely understand that. I respect your opinion. Hopefully you can uh, respect mine as well. Um, I do have concerns over this decision. The evidence of the spread of COVID in these areas is very, very minimal. Um, I think the importance of keeping our communities healthy is enormous and I believe that the healthcare sector and the gym and leisure sectors have done so much work to show that we have COVID secure environments um, and so I'm disappointed in the decision that gyms and leisure centres um, have sort of been lumped in I guess with uh, the hospitality industry here um, and with you know transmissions in family homes and uncontrolled COVID environments for sure. So all is not lost as it stands. The a big shout out here to UK Active, who I must say I think have been the outstanding organisation throughout this entire process. And um, you know I have to be honest. I, I came into this podcast saying I will give my opinion, um, and I have to be honest. I think UK Active has. E uh, extremely outperformed the CSP here. The CSP has been quite quiet for the private sector, in my opinion, and the UK Active uh, organisation has been extremely proactive, extremely vocal, and have really pushed for this industry, and they continue to do so. They are campaigning the government today to try and reverse this decision and allow gyms and leisure centres to stay open, with the fact that on one hand, we're told that exercise and staying healthy is one of the best ways to fight COVID, yet we're closing the facilities that deliver that exact service. 
our kids are being denied the access to um, exercise in any way, shape or form here. Um, even outdoor exercise um, for kids is, is not allowed, which I, you know, I really don't understand in this current in environment, but I'm not pretending to be the expert here. This is just my view and my opinion. So, um, look, for those of you that aren't familiar with UK Active, please follow them. Um, please look at what they're doing. Hugh Edwards is heading that organisation, I believe, is doing a really, really great job. There's a petition that's been going into the government over the last 48 hours. Um, it is going to be debated in Parliament today, is my understanding. So we'll wait and see if there is any change to the guidance as we go through today. But as it stands, um, from midnight tonight, or from one past midnight tonight, gyms and leisure centres will close. Now, it was the um, uh, initial belief, as far as I understand it again, that that includes any of your clinical services that go from within gyms. Um, an update on the CSP website this morning has stated that uh, that is down to local negotiation. Um, I think it will be probably difficult for, um, if gyms are closed, for physio centres um, to be able to offer their services within that environment, uh, for sure. Um, but, um, you know, there's, there's maybe a, a, a tiny little light there. It says that you have to negotiate directly with your local council and your gym operator because there's obviously issues such as access to the facility, insurance cover, what you can and can't do. Um, but moving forwards, um, there's a, a little bit of a a split here and I guess uh, we can only suggest that let's come together within this split as best we can. Physiotherapy and allied health services, um, sports therapy have put out a statement, the Association of Sports Therapists here in the UK have, have um, advised that sports therapy can continue delivering their services as well as long as it is in a clinical environment and a proven COVID secure environment um, and I guess that's the big difference here. Um, Things within the healthcare sector in clinically secure COVID secure environments are allowed to continue. Um, services that don't um, uh, run from those centres, such as from gym halls or from homes, etc., um, currently won't be able to continue. And we've shown as an industry how versatile and how adaptable we are by moving online the way we did through the first lockdown. So our centres will continue. Um, our clinical staff will continue to deliver all of the services. Our Pilates staff will move to online and we um, have launched APPI online as a, an entirely separate sort of venue, clinic if you like. Um, it has its own timetable, its own place on mind, body, um, and that's how we are progressing. So we've split our centres into Hampstead, Wimbledon and online. And we have separate uh, timetables and staff and everything that deliver those services so um, that's where, where we're at um, so a little recap there for you just to be clear um, for us physiotherapy services continue sports therapy services continue um, all other as far as I understand it uh, healthcare services continue through this lockdown such as dentistry physio etc um, obviously appropriate PPE is to be worn appropriate social distance is maintained, COVID secure environments enforced. But at least we can continue to service our communities and keep them as healthy as we can through this next four weeks or beyond. Gyms as it stands need to close and therefore any services delivered from within that setting also must close or move online. So there we are. Uh, that's where we are, that's, that's <laughs> where we stand. 
Um, I, I hope that's answered your questions. Um, I hope that I've addressed some of the sort of ambiguities that are out there at the moment. Um, I do stress that uh, not all is lost for our industry as it stands right now on a Wednesday morning. Um, we'll see what happens throughout the day and I wish the UK Active campaign and all of our industry the very, very best moving forwards. Whatever happens, we need to continue to deliver a positive message about movement. Movement is so important and so important right now. We're seeing a significant increase in injuries present from people sitting at home on Zoom all day long. So yes, we may have to share that platform of Zoom or Mind Body Online has its own services. Various um, other providers can deliver that for you as well. But if we've got people on Zoom, get them moving, get our classes out there. But here's one thing that I just want to, to touch on as well. Um, in the first lockdown, I understand we really didn't know what was going on. There was a lot of maybe uh, misunderstanding of what it is we can do. But here's one thing that I think is something that as an industry we should address. Value your services. From my opinion, don't give them away free. Um, there's a lot of free content out there now. And I think we all have worked very, very hard. You guys have spent a lot of money getting your qualifications and value that. Don't give away your services for free. You provide a great service. In our views, an essential service. Now, if we can't deliver that live right now, let's do it online and let's value what we have to offer to our communities. Um, it's very easy to think that uh, giving things away free is a good move, but it, um, it can mean a, a shift in people's mentality about the value of the services that we have to offer. So a little shout out just to say, believe in yourselves, believe in the quality of your content, the quality of your teaching, the quality of the services that you have to offer, and therefore charge accordingly. So finally, as I wrap this up, I just want to wish all of you out there the very best for these next challenging four weeks ahead. Stick to your beliefs, deliver your services to the best of your ability, value what we do. We have an important, important role to play in keeping our communities healthy over these next four weeks. And so I urge you to look at whatever regulations there are around the industries that you are governed by and deliver the best possible services you can in a safe, COVID-secure environment. All right, so let's, uh, let's try and, and move away from that for a moment, and let me bring you on to what was one of the most enjoyable uh, times I've had on stage in some of the big conferences that we've spoken at. Uh, a uh, interview uh, slash Graham Norton-style sofa-based chat from our 2016 conference. I'd like to introduce you to uh, Alan Herdman, the grandfather of Pilates here in the UK, to Mr. Michael King, who is a, a true legend in our view, was Elisa and my first Pilates teacher and educator and inspired us into this profession, and to Suzanne Scott, one of the most remarkable uh, people in our industry. Her views on rotation and movement inspire me to this day. And she does a lot of work in very many organizations, including in elite sport. So it was my pleasure to share some time with them on stage at our 2016 conference. And I hope you enjoy the conversation.
what I'd like to do now with all of you guys is to start this process of honouring the tradition of Pilates and having a chat about what was the development of Pilates from Joe through to the elders, through to how it came here to the UK. And I'm delighted to have three inspirational people, three people that I uh, admire greatly. And I think it is appropriate for us as a Pilates community to really start to recognise and honour the people that had the drive and the inspiration to start this movement that has led to many of us sitting in this room today. So, good. Got a little surprise for our guests and that I had some great fun uh, playing around with some intro music <laughs> to welcome them to the event. And so I would first like to introduce to you the man who I think should be in the Hall of Fame of Pilates and brought Pilates here to the UK. Please put your hands together, Miss Alan Hurd. I know. <laughs> we'll, we'll go again. It was Hall of Fame by the scripts. Oh, we, you see the link that. I yeah, do. Thank, thank you. <laughs> All right. Okay. The next one you're going to have to use your minds maybe a little more to make the make the link. Okay. Um, All right. Are we good there? All right. Now I like. Oh, one second. The other one. <laughs> this was all seamless in my mind. It's all going to work. I've had it. Yeah. All right, let me introduce to you, hopefully. All right. The uh, queen of our Pilates here today, Suzanne Scott. Finally, the man that I owe my introduction to Pilates to, the man that we've had at pretty much every one of the events, um, and certainly an inspiration for me, an inspiration behind any of you that have done any APPI training, a man that lights up a room whenever he comes into it. Please put your hands together for Mr. Michael King. So, you're going to have to bear with me also. This is my take on Graham Norton. <laughs> I've never done this before, so... <laughs> yeah, that's what somebody said. Have you got the red chair? I was like, no, I've got green chairs. They don't move, so don't worry about Stable. it. Yes. Um, so what we'd like to do, guys, is um, we're going to have a bit of a chat about some of the stories, the traditions, the process of Pilates, um, and then if you have any queries or questions or anything that you would like to ask the panel as we go through or at the end, 
please feel free to do that. Some of these questions you guys have posted to us, and some of them are questions that Elisa and I thought might be interesting for you guys to hear. So, uh, Alan, I'd like to start with you, if I, if I may. Um, <laughs> many of the guys in the room here may not recognize the link between all of you guys, but uh, Alan, as I, I understand it, from the dance, you've all come from a dance background, um, and we're, Suzanne, we're going to have a chat to you in a moment about actually training under Alan as an injured dancer. Um, but Alan, I mean, all of us in this room owe so much to you. You started the movement here, and you came from that, that dance world. So how, how did that transition happen for you? How did you come from a dancer into starting to take the Pilates method on? Um, by sheer chance. <laughs> Was yeah. it? Uh, I was, uh, I trained as a Laban, uh, Laban teacher, and I taught in primary school in London in the 60s. And while I was training in London, I did, I trained with Martha, the Martha Graham system at the London School of Contemporary Dance. And I'd done three years of that and decided I really didn't want to be a dancer. Okay. I mean, I liked the technique, but I didn't want to perform. And they said, we've heard of this exercise technique in America. Yes. Would you be interested in going to train in it and uh -huh, bring it back. Uh -huh. And I said, well, what is it? And they said, well, not, we're not sure, but it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so I got on a plane I was, and went to New York, and I was introduced to Pilates by going into the studio for the first time with Bob Fitzgerald. Really? Mm. That was your first experience Absolutely of Pilates going experience. in? first experience, yeah. And that was the original studio? The, uh, Bob Fitzgerald's original uh, studio. Bob's, he okay. trained with Corolla okay. and had his own studio. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, and Susan, you? were an injured dancer yourself, and then yeah, you I, went to see Alan, is that right? That's right, so we, uh, similar, I was at Laban training and I was injured, and somebody said, oh, you need to go and see this guru, Alan, he'll fix you. <laughs> and uh, I said, what does he do? He said, well, I'm not quite sure, but it's really good. So um, <laughs> I went off and I went to the West Street studio. Do you remember you had the yes. little studio? So Alan had the big studio in Homer Row and a small studio in um, West Street, which was a ballet school. Um, and I just remember, as a contemporary dancer, I felt really out of place because there were these incredibly lean and tiny, very graceful ballerinas. I felt like some chunky kind of contemporary dancer. And I just couldn't believe I had, I was really envious because they'd be doing very, very complex things. And I was made to lie down, I seem to remember, for a very long time. Because <laughs> I was, you know, I had to, had to do all the very slow stuff. And I also couldn't believe how much it, it was effective for so simple things. It yeah. felt like you were doing yeah. very, very little, but the effects were, were incredible. And I knew right away that I one day would like to train in it if it was possible. Oh, yeah, interesting. That is the case, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure you guys are the same. So you, once you make that connection, you get the subtlety and people make, make improvements so quickly. Um, and I can appreciate what you're saying because when I trained with Michael originally, um, when I went in, into the room, I felt completely at home um, amongst <laughs> yeah. all, of, all of the people in, in the room. Michael kindly was kind enough to use me as an example of um, all the things that these beautiful people are going to see happening to other people <laughs> when they go out there and, and train. And I didn't have a, a uh, conscious issue for very long at all. <laughs> and I'm slowly getting over it. Um, but, um, Michael, if I take you back a... A year or two, shall we say, um, to when you, you started yourself. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came into the industry and what gave you the inspiration? Well, I was a dancer as well at uh, London Contemporary at the place, and we had to do Pilates mat work regularly with Sonia and with Alan, but nobody really understood it. 
We knew we had to do it, <laughs> but we really wanted to just be dancing, because when you're young, you don't want to be laying on a mat, you just want to jump up and down and dance. Yeah. And it was, unfortunately, Graham, as wonderful method as it is, wasn't really designed for a man's body. It was designed for a woman's body, and I got injured as well. So I was lucky enough at that time, Alan was opening up Homer Row, his uh, studio, and I was with Julian, unfortunately no longer with us, Julian Littlefoot and I trained with Alan. And um, actually, I lived in the basement for a while at the studio, <laughs> which was scary thinking about it now. Um, but that's, yeah, and I was looking at the But I should add that I, I had just moved to Homer Row. This was my original studio away from the place. And I needed cheap labor to paint. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> cheap labor that lived in the basement. Rent free. Rent free. Well, there was no facilities. <laughs> that was our first challenge. So Julian and I painted uh, the studio and, and lurking up, as I say, training was thrown in as part of the painting. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I love, I love that story. So many of us who are opening our studios can yeah. now be there painting and thinking, oh, this is Get fine. To paint At it. least Michael did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're, you guys have come in, in to the industry, but I guess I'd also like to just go back to something you mentioned there, Alan, that you, from what I understand, you were invited to go over mm. to America, as you said, and, and train initially. I mean, what, what was that like to go into that studio and have that experience? Uh, it, it was frightening to begin with, yes. I must admit. But after a few weeks, I realized that this is what I wanted to do. Um, but the training was very casual. It was, okay. uh, I was like an apprentice. I spent, in fact, I lived in a small room in the studio <laughs> as well. So, <laughs> yeah. And um, I would be, spend 12 hours a day in the studio. Okay. Where, when it was, but just watching and observing, helping people, practicing the, um, the exercise. There was no formal training. Okay. So it was just, you just soaked up. So about seven months of 12 hours a day. Okay. Um, the only trouble is when I came back to London uh, in uh, earlier, in 1970, there was, I was the only Pilates teacher. So I had no one to bounce ideas off. And I think this is where you're all very lucky now to have places like this, conferences and things. So I spent my time with physios and with doctors I did the Alexander Technique, I did Tai Chi, which just helped me to formulate the way I wanted to teach Pilates. Yes, yeah, I mean, that was gonna be my, my next question. Mm. You, how would you compare the way you teach and deliver your Pilates today compared to how it was when you went to New York? I, I, as I say, the influence of uh, asking physios, people like yourself, to help me to solve problems, and uh, Tai Chi helped me with balance, mm -hmm. uh, Alexander with breath and placement. Okay, interesting. And you, you undertook Tai Chi quite a bit yourself yes, as well? Yes, I did, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. interesting. It, it is interesting because actually if we look at a lot of the standing Pilates movements, I think that are coming into more and more popularity today, which I think is very <coughs> important. And Suzanne, we're gonna have a talk about your bone health studies as well in a, in a moment. Um, but when you look at that, I think you can, you can see a Tai Chi influence in a lot of the standing Pilates moves that, that are, are taught in many programs today, um, which is, yeah, which is interesting. Um, Michael, you also headed across the pond, from what I understand. Well, I was sent. Oh, were you? Okay. 
<laughs> Tell us about that because I mean, I think this is one of the things that I'm fascinated with is this transition from you know, Joe to the elders and then how the elders passed their message on to, to us here. And, and you trained under... Well, I tra no, I, Alan trained me and I was running Alan's studio and Alan set up the studio for Houston Ballet. And uh, one of my called Roderick McNeil was running the studio. Then he got his green card and kind of took off to a, a more glamorous job. So Alan said to me one day, uh, you're going to America, but you're coming back. <laughs> so I was like, great. So I had my plastic bags packed in about three seconds and flew British Caledonian. But stayed for three months because they, they had to find somebody to replace Roderick. But of course, I loved it. It was, first of all, hot. <laughs> I remember that getting off the door opening and this heat hitting me. Um, and after three months, you know, I had to return. But of course, being a brat as I was back then, um, I said, well, if I'm coming back, I'm not going to work for you, Alan. So I opened up my own studio at Pineapple Dance Studios, which is just open back then. Um, and about a year later, they called and said, we want you to come back. So I went back to Houston and stayed there uh, for almost 10 years, working at Houston Ballet. And one of the things they first did when I got back, they said, look, I'd learned with Alan. So I thought, you know, when you learn with one teacher, you think you know everything. You know, you think, I, everything's there. Yeah. So I was quite confident that I knew everything. So they, Houston Ballet sent me off to New York. Okay. Well, it sent me so many places, San Francisco to visit James Garrick, who was the first person to put Pilates into a medical environment at San Francisco Hospital. Um, I went to Cleveland, and, but I was also in New York. And I was taking classes uh, with Corolla Studio and also uh, the original Pilates Studio, uh, with, uh, not with Romana initially, because when I first went to that studio, uh, the teacher was teaching me, said, you know, she won't talk to you. You haven't <laughs> been coming for a long time before she even looks at you. So I was, you know, on the reformer, pushing backwards and forwards, and I don't know what happened, but she came in, and whether because I was male, British accent, whatever, or just the fact I was doing it so badly, I don't know. <laughs> but she came over and started working with me. With, oh, and, wow! And, and so that was a big experience. Corolla was very different. She was, and of course, the teachers of Corolla said, "Don't tell Corolla you're going to Romana Studio." Okay. So it was very, and they were very close. The studios were very close to New York, and so. Um, you know, Corolla was a very different teaching style completely. She would just walk over with a stick and prod me, telling me, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. And I'm sat there going, well, I think I'm doing it right. But I never quite knew, even to this day, what I was doing wrong. You yeah. know, I, I think this is one of the saddest things about this period. I mean, I was in uh, Robert Fitzgerald's studio. Uh, Corolla was half a block away, and he trained with her, but he never mentioned her name at all the time I was there. Um, Roma, not Romana, but the, uh, Joe's wife, Clara, was just down the street, never mentioned them. They kept themselves in a little tight box, oh, you know, so they didn't share at all. Yeah. The only thing uh, Robert Gerald said about Carola, she said, he said, I hate that woman. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So when he said that, I thought, I've got to meet her. <laughs> and I, I enjoy, she was very tough. Yeah. But I enjoyed, uh, she was a bird-like woman who used to hover over you. She had very bad osteoporosis. Okay. So she used to get her finger and take you the yeah. stick. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I learned a lot from her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she didn't frighten me. She frightened a lot of people. But I guess because I was British and she was Euro I was European like uh -huh. her, so uh -huh. I got away with it. Uh, it's interesting because I, I guess we don't hear so much about how the studios actually did come about. Yeah. Um, we sort of refer to it as the original studio as being one mm -hmm. studio. Also, there. it's interesting that all the, um, the elders, there was Corolla, Kathy Grant, 
Eve Gentry, they all talked very differently from Joe. Okay. They all had their own style, which, you know, when people talk to me, oh, well, Joe wouldn't have done it like this. I hear this a lot. If yeah. I do an exercise, I say, well, that's not Joe's work. Yeah. I said, well, tell me what is, because everybody had a different take on the exercises. And I think they all had their favorite machines. Yeah, that's Because I know true. back then, if you wanted to learn the reformer, you went to Romana. If you wanted to learn the chair, you went to Cathy. Okay. You know, mm. If you wanted to learn a Cadillac, you went to Corolla. They used all the machines, but yeah. I think they favored back then. There was that understanding. But I think early London was like that, because you know, Gordon Thompson <coughs> had his studio Erdang opposite me when I was at Pineapple. Uh -huh. And literally, it was like 200 yards away. And we never really saw each other back then. We saw each other, so much later, we saw each other all the time. But you know, London was very much like that. You know, mm -hmm. people were, it was about the clients. It wasn't yeah. really about, if you wanted to learn, you had to do the apprentice system back then. There wasn't courses, there wasn't systems out there. So I think it was a very different time. Yeah. Somebody told me that Balanced Body did a, a survey back in the 80s, and I think there were only about less than 100 teachers of Pilates back then. Really? Yeah, yeah. No, it was a, mm. it was a very small That's industry. That's not really that long ago. Is no, it? no, no sure. So, I mean, we've gone a long way yeah. <laughs> in a short time. Yes, absolutely. For sure. For sure. And now, I mean, um, I'm going to come back to sort of it arriving in London in a moment. But um, I'm interested if, through the time that you guys spent with the elders, whether there's any particular stories about Joe himself that maybe we haven't heard or that you find interesting or stick in your minds at all that you heard directly from from the people you trained under? I, uh, not so much the people, uh, as I say, they didn't really mention him. Oh, really? No, I thought you said no. they didn't mention each other. They, they didn't know they didn't know, know they were just concerned about themselves. Really? Mm. They, but talking to um, a guy who was, jo uh, jo his parents went to Joe, and he was, uh, he was sent to Joe with, with his parents, and he became his lawyer. Okay. And talk, I was talking to him just this summer at, uh, in B POT, and he says that he was very friendly with Joe. They spent a lot of time together, but he, he never knew a thing about Joe. Wow. He was never given any information about his background, about his feelings. Okay. And also, he never remembered a client's name. Joe? Yeah, he just did <laughs> not remember a client's name. They came in, he put them through the routine, they left. Okay. And as they left, it's almost as if he shut down next one. Okay. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Michael, any stories or anything that you've heard? No, I think, you know, it's, you hear stories back then, and the many yeah. stories were myths. You know, there's a lot of myths associated about, yes. you know, if we heard for years that he died in a fire, saving his, trying to save his equipment. That was a common one. Uh, you it's know, not. And it's not true. You know, there was a lot of stories that, you know, since my, I was lucky enough to be at the Isle of Man um, uh, visiting the camp, which is going to be reopening in okay. 2017. And, you know, it's, it's hard to, it, the miss you heard, you know, to him being a medical aide on the camp and all these things. Yeah. You know, the more we realize now that some of the stories are not, they're a bit embellished. Okay. Um, okay. And I think, I think that's what, you know, over the years, things became clearer. I heard about running down, I think my first book I wrote about him chasing someone down the street with a gun. Which was not true at all. <laughs> I heard <laughs> these that story. Are, yeah, these stories that were, were told yeah. to us yeah. uh, you know, back then because very little was known because they were very private. Yes. Um, and you know, if you were going to the studios back then, and of course, we didn't refer to the teachers back then as elders. They were just teachers. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, scary teachers, but they were just teachers. <laughs> yeah. But um, so, and not much was spoken about how they trained or were 
You know, it's all myth, really, when, okay. it, when it comes out. And there's only three elders left, yes. which makes me very worried. Yeah. <laughs> 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 my, uh, my next question comes directly from, from Elisa, and um, I showed her some of the things I wanted to have a chat about. And she said, um, so what I find interesting about your questioning, Glenn, is that we all know that it actually isn't the man that really does everything. It's the woman that does it all. And where are your questions about Clara? I want to learn about what Clara was like. Um, did either of you or Susanna, have you had any, any input with Clara or any information? Uh, do you know anything you can educate us about Clara? Clara was... Uh, uh, Joe was an innovator. Mm -hmm. And this is from people who used to go there. Joe would devise an exercise and then Clara would take over and teach it okay. and make it work. Okay. Uh, this, this is the story. That sounds familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> she was really, she was, a, uh, she was a very calming influence in the studio. Okay. Um, and it's, um, she, the story goes that with, uh, when he died, um, he, he was buried, you know, they went last year, I can't remember yeah, which, yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah, and Clara was heard to say, now I know where he is. <laughs> I, I think he was a free spirit. Okay. You know? okay. I always heard that you know, she was, he created, she translated. You know, yeah, his English, his, his English yeah. never got very good, apparently. Yeah. Okay. He would th regularly throw clients out of the studio for not knowing the method. Okay. You know, if you said the name of the movement, you didn't know it. It was uh, he would throw you out, including the teachers or the clients and everything. And it was Clara to go running after the clients, begging them to come back. And she would say, "Papa," as he was known in the studio, "We need the money and uh, <laughs> <laughs> try and get the clients back." The other thing which I learned, which was a big shot, was actually Joseph Palas didn't like injured people. Oh, really? He liked to work with fit, healthy okay. dancers. Okay. So Carola was the first person to leave Joseph and set up her own studio with his blessing. Okay. And he would send injured people to Corolla. And so that was quite well known back then. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that he didn't like working with injury. Yeah. And we think of it as such a rehab method today. Yeah. yeah. But from the man himself, he wanted yeah. fit, healthy bodies. Okay. That is interesting. That is interesting. But he was very, uh, he, but he did, um, Jane Dudley's, uh, who was a contemporary dancer and teacher at this place, her mother took her to Joe. And her mother slipped on the ice and dislocated her wrist on the way into the studio one day, and he reset it. Are you kidding? So he did have this, um, this ability Instinct, to do yeah. it. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. I don't think I would even try that. <laughs> um, I want to start to bring it back here to the UK um, and bring it back to, to the transition here. I mean, Alan, when you brought the method back here, what was it like? Was there much resistance? to it? Was it a, a difficult process? No, I, I think I was very lucky because um, we had drawings of the apparatus which were based on Corollas, which was based on Joe's. Yeah. And the, uh, the scenery department of the London School of Contemporary Dance made the machines. So I was in a protected environment. So okay. I, was, uh, I worked with the students. I worked with dancers in the company. Then we gradually opened it up to the staff in front office and then their friends. So it gradually okay. built up like that. But it, you know, unlike going out into the, into the wide world, I was, un I was protected, okay. which was very good. Okay, yeah, that is, yeah. That is good. And then you, when did it start to become a more formalized sort of teaching process of 
teaching I, training I, to teach I, others? You know, like when I uh, trained Michael and uh, Julian, it was like this apprenticeship mm. sort of thing. I, I formalized the, um, the where I teach now with groups of people about 12 years ago. But mm. for that time, it was slightly ad hoc. You know, okay. people would, a dancer would retire and said, oh, I'd like to learn Pilates. So they'd come into the studio and be an apprentice. Okay. But now we've cha we changed that about 10 years ago. Okay, interesting. Suzanne, I want to um, bring you in in terms of Pilates here in the UK. Um, and as you evolved, you mm. uh, found reason to set up the Pilates Foundation and try and get a little bit more um, unification amongst teachers. What well, was, I can't what take was the credit for that. I mean, that okay. was Trevor Blunt brought us okay. together when uh, there was a copyright issue with the name in the States. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And he felt very much that we should have the right to use it in the UK. So he, I mean, we were, we were a very small group of people um, yeah. at the time. And he brought us together. And Alan was the first president. And as I okay. was my mentor and my original teacher then, I sort of went went that way. Um, I'd done some exploring as well by then, so I had gone out to Canada and studied with Moira was my teacher there, okay. which was a way of accessing um, the original work because she was trained by Romana. So it was although she'd modified it with physio. So the the Pilates Foundation, I think, really originated to promote unity amongst the teachers and to protect us, but it didn't really. Um, have an aim of centralizing things because as Alan was saying it was very much still an apprenticeship based mm, system yeah. and, You know, I I remember taking a call from Gordon once in my studio saying I, I hear you've got some videos from Moira. Could I order? I mean, you know, there was no internet Nobody really knew yeah. how to get access to a lot of the material and archive was to go to the place There was no sort of way of getting it off the internet. So it was it was that's how that started and We all had our independent trainings and then I guess as things occur to do with reps and to do with centralizing themes if you're going to be in a body, you have to have a centralized syllabus. And uh, so I've moved away simply because I want to keep um, my work independent. So that's that's why. But I wasn't. A f I was one of the original members. I wasn't a founder. You know. Oh, okay. okay. Important to honour that. So your journey then, uh, you trained with Alan under yes. this more apprenticeship yeah. type system yes, that we're yeah. learning about, and then Ad went to Canada. Wonderful, I have to uh -huh. say, it was very good. I must admit, I enjoyed that. Uh, way of teaching because w when I train a teacher, I don't want lots of little Al Alan Herdman's running around. I want someone to put their personality into their uh -huh. training. Yep. So they, they bring their own personality and background into their teaching of Pilates, which yeah. I think it makes it much wider and deeper. Yeah. And when you take an approach like that, someone in your standing, it's interesting because I'm sure you guys are aware there are people that will say if it's not taught in a certain way, it's not called Pilates. Um, yet they just don't know. Those well, that's what I would gather earlier. people saying that mm -hmm. really don't know. They know one thing and they're not exposed to other things and they believe that one thing they know, as good as it might be, yeah. is the only way. Yes. And it's, it's kind of sends me straight running to open a bottle of red wine every so often. <laughs> <laughs> because when I hear these things, if you would see the variety, the depth and the tapestry that there was, how yes. it evolved, that the, mm. the, the method has never been just about one thing. I mean, one of the things Alan taught me, which has always stayed with me, is the most important thing is the client, not the movement. Yeah. That is the, the most important thing. And it, you know, the same with the teacher, you know, it's not about being duplicating little robots doing exactly what you're doing. You know, every teacher I've worked with has been unique. You know, it's been yeah. very different, have got different personality, different background, yes. as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And it, it's so important to keep that richness, that depth. And so when people walk in and use the word classical or 
you know, authentic or whatever they're using, those words to clarify that it's, it should be just one thing, is limiting the experience. <clears throat> yeah. It really does, as I say, send me screaming sometimes when people come in and say, well, it's not original, it's not classical, it's not pure. Yeah. I'm like, well, what does that mean? The, the client should be the most important thing. So uh, talking with Suzanne in the last few months about this, you know, Joe was an innovator, and he would have changed the technique drastically if he'd lived. Mm, totally. And you know, you, I say to people, if you bought a car in 1967 when Joe died, would you keep it the same way in, the, in 2016? Mm. Also, um, if you look at the original mat work, 75% is in flexion. And in, in our, <laughs> nowadays, we don't need all that flexion. I mean, we're watching television, we've got in our phones, and we're on our phones. We need more extension. Yes. And I, I, you know, people say, oh, but you're not doing inflection. I said, well, look at you. I mean, yeah. you're almost bent over yeah. as it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I've just, I came, was in PMA last, um, last month in, in America, and there was a special class where three te four teachers took turns of teaching, 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. The first half hour with two very good teachers was complete flexion. And out of the whole, uh, whole hour, there was about three extension exercises. Yeah. And I thought, this is wrong. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's great to hear. I mean, it's good to even here in the room. I think everyone's in agreement there. Um, and I think it, it is very important. I spent a bit of time a few years back um, just going over the, the concept of the bone health principally from mm -hmm. the spine in relation to our Pilates movements and what, what are we doing from a bone health point of view. Um, but Suzanne, you've taken that a lot further. You're into it, as I understand, towards the end of a yeah. PhD, is that right? God hope, yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Can you so tell I, us a bit about uh, yeah, so your study? Yes, I started out a PhD in one direction, which was working actually with the movements of football. So I was working mm -hmm. with a football physiologist, and he went back to Copenhagen, as they do. So <laughs> I've got uh, a different, um, I've taken a strand of that, and it's involved looking at um, intermittent movement and uh, looking at that in relation to bone health, how we can start to answer some questions about the kind of movements we need to do in relation to changing bone health status, I suppose. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, if you've talked to a bone researcher, they, they're not that interested in this idea of flexion extension from our perspective, from a, from a group of mat work exercises. But they are interested in things that change bone, and the types of things that change bone are obviously controlled impacts, accelerations, and shear forces. So yeah. I think if you think about where Pilates is going in relation to that, I think it's keeping you musculoskeletally able to do the things which will change your bone, which is probably vertical work and probably, yes. you know, centralized loading. Yeah. Um, so that's really where my work's going, and I've looked at, at that with dancers and footballers. Those are the people I'm... And sedentary women as well. We should chuck that in there so yeah. to take, yes. take the general population <laughs> box for that. Um, I'm going to... I'll take your lead on the dancers and footballers thing, because from, from what I've read yeah. about you, you've, you've worked extensively within that field, and there's a, some fascinating quotes out there in terms of um, you talking about the similarities between dancers and footballers in relation to how Pilates can be used for them. Yeah. Um, I've worked quite a lot in the football yeah. world and um, they do have a very specific set of um, movement patterns and muscle patterns specifically. 
Um, what's your take on the, the link between football and dance and how Pilates throws all of that the in? The word prima donna kind of just... <laughs> <laughs> and that's about the football. Let's, let's clarify yeah, what we're talking really about there. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that if, you know, my physiology hat on both dancers and footballers are intermittent athletes. So what that means is they do a, a burst of activity and then they're like sort of, you know, grazing cows for 10 minutes and then off mm -hmm. they go and do another bit. So there's, there's that physiological aspect of it. But I think when I said that, it was more thinking about um, both of them as what I call hip code athletes. Both um, codes of, of performance require um, good range of movement in the hip joint particularly. And, and that's where a lot of the problems then can occur. Um, and in also both cases, they manage things differently. So footballers tend to be sometimes inhibited by being able to control their range of movement. Dancers often have that range of movement and are better at the outer range control position. So there's sort of things on, you know, it's like robbing from one to take to the other. I think football has fantastic preparation for the physiology of an intermittent sport. Dancers have great control of deceleration, which is something footballers can learn from. So often I will use movements I would use from my dance training with the football. I just don't always tell them that's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> you have, have you tried a full dance class in oh, yeah. the football yeah, 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 yeah. goes down really well. Does it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. um, taking, uh, again, some interesting comments there. I'm just going to touch on the, the bone house side because, Michael, you mentioned earlier um, the word standing Pilates and getting people up off the mat, Alan, you touched on the mat being a very flexion-based system. What's your sort of view of, of this move off the mat into standing and, and how that's evolving? I think it's completely natural. I mean, I love it when people come to my class for the first time and they, you know, they walk up to me very proudly and say, just to let you know, I'm advanced. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, fabulous. Show me. And they immediately lay down. Yeah. You know, and they yeah. start flapping their arms really fast and breathing very fast. <laughs> And I said, no, 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 no. What you're doing on the mat is a training position. How you stand yeah. shows me what level you are. Yeah. You know, the mat yeah. is where we take gravity out of the way and get things better. But it all comes back to standing. And really with the repertoire of the reformer, which I'm teaching today, and a lot of this goes on from the back up to upwards. So yeah. I think it's an absolutely natural progression to actually to, to bring in standing work. But I do think, obviously, we need to know the mat first because we yes. do need, a lot of people do need to lay down find correct positions before it successfully works up uh, standing. Yes, yes. Um, do many of you guys, who's doing standing base Pilates stuff already? Fantastic. <laughs> Michael, you developed the Pilates Institute and over yes. a very relatively short period of time, it, it evolved hugely and, and started to spread the world of teaching quite rapidly, really. Many people in the room here will be running their own businesses or um, be thinking about how they can can develop what they do. What was it like for you seeing you know, the, the growth and the story of, of how the Pilates Institute sort of evolved through those years? Uh, well, I mean, it was timing. I mean, at that time, you know, people began appearing in the newspapers, in magazines. People wanted to know about it. And I remember sending out a flyer thinking, I wonder if anyone wants to train. And literally the phone didn't start ringing for 10 years. Um, it was a great time, but it was it was... Also evolving time because people were coming to the method, sometimes not having experienced the method. Back when we had apprentice systems, you had to be a client for at least a year, yes. you know, more, to, before you were invited to teach. Um, and so suddenly we were dealing with people coming along and having no experience of Pilates, so they had to learn it first before they could really teach it. And that was challenging. So we kind of broke down training rather into different modules, um, and with the hope that everyone finished the modules. 
Uh, looking back on it, I think I would probably change that now because everyone thought after the mat work won that they were they knew everything and off they skipped to make yes. a living. Uh, but I think you know it, it was interesting. I think it was all about timing, really. I mean, the success of the Plus Institute. Uh, OCR, which was the first government body to come to us, asked for an official, they took our MatWork 1 course as, a, as the OCR Level 2 module. Um, and that, again, was the first time we, in the world there was any kind of standardization of training um, yeah. that was linked to the government. It later went on to REPS to Level 3. Um, and again, you know, qualifications really are only as good as the managed, to be honest, because yes. what we originally set up with Level 3 is certainly not what's out there today, uh, was what we thought would be good training. Yeah. Um, so I think it was, um, the timing of Plus Institute was, I mean, it was like a fast train. You know, it was, the phone never stopped ringing. We trained a lot of teachers from different backgrounds. You know, not just yourself with a wonderful yeah. dance background as you had. <laughs> Thank you. you know, I always say, well, the, I always say, everyone's a dancer. You know, I was, you know, inside, there's dance, there's dance inside of you somewhere. Um, <laughs> just sometimes takes a little bit longer. <laughs> but I still see your turnout being slightly, slightly limited back then. Yeah, um, no, it's fantastic now. Yeah, you well, should see, yeah. Yeah. I can see later today. Yes. Um, but no, I think it's, it's about timing. I think if you're going to start any business, um, I think it's about providing something which you feel is, is good to the right people. And as I say, yeah. back then, it was everybody, physios, dancers, fitness people, a lot of fitness people coming, wanting yeah. to put it into fitness the quickest way possible. Because there was yeah. suddenly this big demand in, in this country Probably called it, uh, created by body control, actually, because they were the ones that were in every ma uh, Daily Mail or on the British Airways magazine. Yep. You know, suddenly everyone was saying the word Pilates. Yeah. Um, so they wanted, people wanted to know what it was about. Yeah. So say it was difficult because, as I say, they, they hadn't learnt it. They had to learn it as well, and they thought it was just movements. Yes. As we know today, the movement's the easy part. Yeah. <laughs> Learning yeah. a set of movements you could do quite quickly. It's the actual putting, making it work for the way you're going to be working. Yeah. So yeah. I would say... Timing is everything. Timing. Definitely. Yeah. Alan, what was it like from your point of view, sort of, I guess, um, you came into the Pilates world um, sort of in that mid to late 90s, and everything seemed to be moving pretty quickly at that time. What was it like well, from your I, point of view? I started in 1970, so the first eight years when I was at the place, it, it just very gently, you know, yeah. it was, as I say, there was no hurry. Yes. Um, and I said, we, we worked at the apprenticeship scheme. Um, and then when I opened my first studio independently in, in England, in London was 1978. And that's when it started going, um, yeah. it, moving on. But what, I mean, what I find frightening now, I travel a lot uh, around the world guest teaching. And what I find really frightening is the people who have done two, three weekends of training and they say they're Pilates teachers. Mm -hmm. And you know, if, you, if you're really bright, you can learn a series of exercises very quickly, but can you interpret them for the individual? And this is what I want teachers to do. I want them to look at, say, three different people and teach the same exercise but differently for that, yes. the different yeah. needs yeah. of that person. And this is not happening these days with these fast trainings. Yes, yeah. Suzanne, from your point of view, I'm going to take you sort of a lead into the studio side of things. You've mm. run a successful studio for, for a long time. Well, Jock runs it. He's at the back, my husband. Ah, oh, right. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of couples. Yeah, <laughs> so there is, yeah. isn't there? A lot of things, yeah. So we do have um, a big studio in Somerset, yeah. Yeah. What, what do you sort of take from that that maybe we can learn in terms of 
in developing a successful Pilates studio over a long period of time? Because a lot of studios come and go yeah. quickly. We, you we, see we, things we, popping you know, up and then they there's go. There's no blueprint. We're very, I mean, not, we're not chaotic, but we're very um, organic. That's the correct word. Um, I, I think we're very client-centered, exactly what Alan is saying. And I mean, what, that was one of the things that Alan said to me. I could teach you these, these moves in a weekend, but it will take you 10,000 hours or whatever, you know, yes. to actually observe it. So I think it's, it's letting things grow naturally. I think this, it's very different in Somerset. We, have, we don't have the pressures you have in a, in a very commercial place, maybe to meet your bills, so we can take things very steadily. We try to have a very diverse community of teachers. I mean, they've all gone through my approach to teaching, but like Alan said, and, and as you said, Michael, they're very individual. So I think it's having having an ethos, but then allowing individuals to interpret that and, and staying client focused. You can't, you know, it's a template, an exercise is a template, a treatment is a template. You have to see how that reacts with the individual and having a community and peer support, I think is very important. We do that well. We have a nice community of, with, of people where we are your, within, in our studio. Yeah. 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 I think Michael, you've run studios all over the world. What, <laughs> what do you, what do you, what can we learn from that? Um, <laughs> I think you know it, there's no one type, there's no one it's not McDonald's yeah every studio is different it can be one person teaching on one machine it can be like Alan's original studio with uh, how many, 20 how many machines in your home row how many machines yeah it was uh, like 20 odd wasn't quite it? a few yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean you can have big studios with yeah. you know there's no one system but everything and it also there's no one machine and people always ask me yeah. people be this question what's your favorite machine yeah you know and I said well we used to make our own machines you know, we, I made my own machines for pineapple. Alan made his own machines. I said, now we've got these beautiful machines out there, peak of which are here this weekend. You know, but every machine's different. Yes. And I think every teacher should be different. Every studio should be different. Yeah. But it takes time to build a studio. That's what people are often misled. You know, it takes at least a good couple of years to build your client base. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if it takes less, great. But you have to plan for that. Yes. And, and but also, I think, um, at the end of the training course, I, we, we will interview the people what they want to do. And I, I only train about 10 people a year, so it's very contained. And they'll, uh, they'll say, I want to open my own studio. What do you think? I said, actually, why don't you go and work for someone for a year at least, two mm -hmm. years if you can, and get the feeling of a studio rather than going out into the world and open a studio? because it's, it's very hard work. And you know, when I first opened my studio, I was working 12 hours a day, because that's the way to build up your, your business. And the kids I talked to now said, well, how many hours a day will you work? Oh, no more than six. And I went, so what, what about the other part of the day? Oh, I'll get someone to, I'll, I'll have a teacher to do that. How are you going to pay them? So they, they, you, you know, you say, think this through. You know, you may work in someone else's studio for two years and go, actually, I'm not going to have my own business. I'm just going to work with someone yeah. else, rather than spending a lot of money opening a studio and c closing within, yes. within months, which is very sad, I think. Yes, it is. and Because you do see it more and more, don't you? Yeah. And I think, who here runs their own studio? Who owns, runs their own studio? Yeah? Quite a few of you. How long do you guys think? How long does it take to get a successful studio off the ground? Three, five. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You got to. I think the one of the things I was hoping to get out of the discussion is just to put it out there that um, you know the journey is a long, a long journey, right? The rewards can be fantastic, and by rewards I mean what you can do for people. 
but you've got to put the effort in, in to get there. And a lot of that comes down from you know, investing in your training, right? And continuing to evolve, continuing to look at what other opportunities that you can offer in to different studios. And you know, also the strain uh, of, and the uh, stress of building a studio can affect the way you teach. Mm. And, and th this is a, a major yeah. problem. I think the best way for people starting, if they, if they can manage, is start with a home studio. You know, yeah. if they've got a spare room or a basement and start small. And, and then take the clients with yeah. you as you grow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had a teacher in Scotland, and she moved her family out of the living room for a year. And they had to eat dinner in the bedroom. And she turned her living room into a studio, but made enough money in a year to actually build an extension to the back of the, back of the house. I think overheads are always the biggest challenge. And we've had many different studios and hospitals at St. Thomas's. We had a studio there and the Married Hotel. You know, the personality of a studio changes depending on where your studio is. If yeah. you are in a clinic, then you have a certain feeling to the studio. You yes. know, yeah. we just opened one in Greece where we've been work living for the last 18 months. And it's in a fitness club. And that fitness club's got everything. It's got CrossFit, hanging yoga, everything. And you know, it's always interesting when and we're right there as you walk in. And the, the, the sales staff, we, you know, we hear them describe it differently. You know, that's the place you go when you're injured. Okay. You know, that's the stretching room. Uh -huh. you know, the, so even today with all the information, you know, even in a fitness club, it's very difficult because people usually want it just to be a fitness program. Or to be for stretching, yeah. you know, and it's, it, as we all know, it's not <laughs> just that simple. Yes, I, I want to touch on that a little bit because you have taught in many countries around the world and indeed have studios or had part in studios around the world. Um, looking up where you've been over the, uh, the last year or so, you've been to some very interesting countries that very. I know nothing about. Um, what are some of these sort of less well-known countries that you've been into, and what was it? What was it like? What was the opinion of Pilates there? Sometimes I feel a bit like a missionary going in. I was just this last couple of months. I was in Turkey when the military coup happened. Um, I was in Sonoma, which turned out, which much to my surprise, was the actual capital of the cartels in Mexico. And what I learned about the cartel ladies is they love Pilates. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, they can probably afford it as so, well. So, you know, when they said, you know, how many more shall I do? I said, whatever you want. <laughs> do I breathe in? No, out. whatever you want. <laughs> Just tell your husband you've had a good time. <laughs> I think it changed. Doing Pilates, though, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really. Um, and I got paid in 20s, which was very nervous. Um, but I think it changes in different countries depending who took it in there. Yeah. It's quite simple. Whoever was the first person going, in fact, one of our teachers from Hungary was just in Iran uh, teaching Pilates uh, to a group of teachers there, where it's very popular, amazingly. Um, and apparently, the lady that took it in there has been teaching 20 movements fixed for the last five years. And all the teachers can only teach these 20 movements, some of which my teacher said, I've never seen before some of these movements. <laughs> so I think it depends who takes it into the country. But it is different, as you know, from Australia, from, yeah. you know, there's obviously with the, the physio world, it's, sometimes it's not linked to physio, although like in Brazil, you have to do Pilates to be a physiotherapist. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's very interesting how it changes depending on the first person that brought it in. Yeah. And as I say, going back to Alan, I was lucky enough to, to see the modifications before I, I learned some of the more traditional stuff, should we say, yeah. from, from New York. I think yes. that background gave me... A good setup for yes. it. Yes. Country wise, Alan, what are some of the interesting places you've had to take the method into to begin with? All over Turkey, um, <laughs> Israel, 
Okay. I, I opened studios with the Bat Door Company in Israel, which was quite interesting. With, sorry? In ba the Bat Door, which oh, is okay. a dance company. Okay. okay. Uh, in Sweden, I opened. I've worked a lot in America. Yes. Uh, Greece, I work in. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm try I don't open studios anymore. Okay. No, I just go and visit and help. Okay. But I don't that's get quite, That's quite I, nice. I, I <laughs> yeah. Don't get into opening studios. Yeah. Uh, very good. Um, is Kevin, Kevin here? Can you see if Kev's around? Um, we, uh, we did have some uh, interesting questions from, from some of the, the guys that put some questions into, and one of them was taking a look at the Matwork repertoire. Um, and Suzanne, I'll start with you if I could. Um, from the Matwork repertoire, what is your favourite, it's hard to say favourite, but what exercise out of the Matwork would you sort of have as a highlight? Or, or as a staple, two. shall we Am say? I have two. You can have two, okay, yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just because it's... Um, I, well, at shoulder bridges, you can't really get away without that. And you yeah. teach a lot of creative variations, and it's, it's great. It is applicable. It has a good follow-over for vertical work because of the posterior hip emphasis. You can chuck a bit of rotation control in a single leg. And another one I like, because I work a lot with goalkeepers, is um, the, the advanced side lying series. So you'd be going into things like your side bend mermaids or side overs, whatever you want to call them. Because yep. I think it's, I'm really fascinated by the connection between the peripheries and the centre. And the, if you don't teach equipment-based Pilates, you don't have many opportunities to kind of close the circuit. But if you have your hands on the floor, your feet on the floor, and you're pushing and moving in the centre, then that's getting into some quite interesting movement stuff. So I really like that. Those would be my take-homes. Yeah, good. Interesting. You are allowed to. You are allowed to. Certainly oh, yeah, the, the shoulder bridge is, yeah. is, yeah, it's a very interesting one. Michael, same question for you. I think it changes, <laughs> but at the moment, I think I'm really, I love the saw. Okay, I think, yeah, for me personally, with my, my, the saw just really gets places on a, on a daily basis. And the push-up, of course, because, you know, it's the biggest movement. And it, it tells me a lot about what's going on with my body these days. Yes. You know, yeah. Going down is one thing. If you can get back up, it's the, it's the second part of it. Um, yeah. But no, those two at the moment. But I think as teaching, it's like it changes as far as the equipment as well. You know, you, you come to certain things. I've been in love with the ladder battle for the last year. I've been having this passionate relationship with the ladder battle. Okay. Which, uh, which, you Thank know, you for sharing. As, you, you know, <laughs> I was told to watch what I said today. <laughs> <laughs> That's thing Malcolm said to me. Watch what you said. <laughs> But no, I love the ladder bar. I think every, every client I have coming in, I, I work with a ladder, ladder bar. Yeah. But for, for funny, for many years, I didn't. Okay. So I think as teaching, you do change favorites yeah. and, um, and machines, really. Yes. Yeah. Alan, for yourself, same question. I have to join Suzanne with the uh, shoulder bridge because it has so many variations and yeah. you can do a lot with it. And just for sheer fun, uh, rolling like a ball. Okay. I, I just start laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and I love teaching it because I love to see people wobbling around and falling over. Yeah. Well, I always say it's the reason why we play music in some classes because of the noise that comes out the body. <laughs> <laughs> There's always an interesting one with rolling back. Yes. <laughs> But you know, you, with it, you know, a, a mat work class can get a little static. Mm. So if, if I need to, and, and they're capable of doing it, if I need them to sort of get moving, I will do links of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, my favorite one is rolling like a ball into open leg rocker, into teaser, back to ball, and just keep them moving. Yes. Yeah. And they have to 
they are not allowed to fall out of sync. Yeah. They have to be in a line, and they have to finish the movement absolutely the same time. In the yeah. end, everyone is in fits of laughter. And yeah. to me, that is and enjoying. Have, yeah, having yeah. fun. That's, yeah. yeah. Totally. I think that's the... You know, I think that, again, I, I do hope... I'm, I'm sure you'll get it in all of your sessions through this weekend, but it is a, um, a big focus of, of our method is this, this idea of movement and actually just embracing the movement. Um, you know, certainly from my point of view, and, and I was as guilty as anyone, we, we did get too focused on individualised muscle control and maybe went away from the essence of the movement. Mm -hmm. And um, I would like you know, us to spend this weekend enjoying that essence of movement and seeing what movement, when you, when you take away the, I often um, talk about when you look at, at kids and if you were to look at a child move and an adult move, what's the difference mm. between those two things? And I find it interesting because, again, we had our, our uh, pre-con yesterday, which was all about Pilates for Children, um, and they used the, the quote from Joe about first look at the child and then uh, look at the elder. And um, that concept of freedom of movement, not having the fear of what might be, um, I think is, a, is an important part of, of you know, the evolution of Pilates. And I think maybe we're starting to get that sort of full circle. Yeah, in I, our I think we're sometimes we're that. just too obsessed with doing it right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, which muscle am I using? And, and I thought, well, hopefully a few more than one. <laughs> a few but, more than know, when you walked in. How do I breathe in and out? <laughs> so, right. I love that. Yes. Um, all right, we have, uh, we've only got a, a few minutes left. I have to say, I've, it's been an absolute honor speaking with the three of you up here. I'd like to um, ask you guys if there's uh, anything that uh, anyone in the room would like to ask our, our three panelists here. Me? Oh, thank you for asking. That's very kind of you. Um, yeah, I, I'm sorry to, to disappoint, but I'm, I'm going to go with these guys. For me, it's shoulder bridge. Um, shoulder bridge and the um, part of shoulder bridge or the, the concept of shoulder bridge that, for me, is vitally important is looking at it with articulation and without articulation mm -hmm. and the difference in the muscle functioning, um, for example, in relation to the hip um, and the difference that doing an articulated bridge will be due to a straight spine bridge. And, and um, yeah, I think a huge amount of my program, certainly in the rehab world, um, will include a version of shoulder bridge. Um, just, I think, Suzanne, you touched on it as well, that concept between shoulder bridge is such a lovely movement that encourages a relative hip extension. Even if you don't go into hip extension, you're getting that motion. You're getting some, some great posterior hip work while you open up the front of the hip that dissociation between lower lumbar spine and, and pelvis. Um, and then that, that key link, which all of everyone in this room will be amazing with, I'm sure, but looking at that link between the lumbar spine and the thoracic spine and actually what is your movement like through that segment, uh, segment of your back, because I think that's a crucial part. And um, are you doing rotation? Sorry? Today, are you doing rotation? Yeah. Today, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's where... Uh, Alan touched on this concept of flexion and 
if you look at shoulder bridge, um, if you look at bringing in rotational movements through the spine and seeing what that does to free up a sagittal movement pattern is, is amazing. So um, I think those of you that are, they've got a few rotation sessions on this weekend, I think that's going to be a, a key part of, of this weekend, I hope. Okay. Any other questions from, from you guys? Don't be shy. In the early days, we did everything at the same, you know, we did, did it all. It wasn't, I do mat work. I'm a mat work teacher. I'm a, uh, a, 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 an apparatus teacher. You were a Pilates teacher, which is, it involved everything. So, because I, I feel that, um, yeah, although the mat work is, some of it is very good. I hesitate to say it's all good. But <clears throat> the, I think they have to go together to really, because I mean, a lot of the stuff you do on the mat, it's transferred to the reformer and onto the trap table. I, I don't teach mat classes in my studios, but I will do mat exercises on the trap table. So you have the protection. You're, a, you're off the floor for um, more mature people. And so they can get on and off very easily. And you've got the framework that you can hold on to if necessary. Thank you. You guys, anything on that from yourselves? There's difference between mat and machine. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, <coughs> I think, in the involvement because there is probably a lot more mat work being taught now than there was originally, I would imagine. Well, equipment um, costs money, so yeah. always mat work's the easiest to put into a facility. Uh, but I think, you know, looking back on it, we, we learned it all together in the studio. It wasn't separated. Um, I think today a lot of people are doing... Um, Blood is mat work, and I think it's great that they're doing, but I think they're missing a, lot, a big part of the learning by not getting on the equipment. But then, if, now what's great about the UK is the studios everywhere. Yeah. You know, it used to be just London, but now the studios everywhere across the UK, so it's very easy to get to a studio. Yes. Um, and I think it's a big learning experience for the body. <coughs> to get. I, when I'm explaining it to new clients, you know, and they always look at the cheaper option, which is mat work. You know, I say it's much more difficult to cheat on the equipment. Yes. You know, and my understanding was that he designed the equipment to train you to do the mat work. You know, it all that was back. the way. It, that, it, that's what my understanding it, of that. I also think you know one has to be very careful. Um, you know, the medical profession are now saying um, you should do Pilates, and I'm talking about doctors. Thank you for the, the clarification. Doctors <laughs> and people. And, you know, I've had clients who will say, well, my doctor told me to do Pilates, and I went and did a mat work class. I did a class which they thought were Pilates, and I was worse at the end of it. So we, we, get, we get a situation where the doctor says to their patient, you, really, you should do Pilates. So this lady or gentleman goes down the street and sees a sign, Pilates. So they go in. It's in a church hall. It's unheated, thin mats on the floor and it injures them. So yeah. I think we, it, it needs to be, have some clarification of what it involves yes. if you're going to recommend it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, you know, I'm sure everyone in the room will agree with that and understand that, but uh, I think that's one of those things that's very important, isn't it, for us to understand. Certainly, if you're going to recommend anything, you need to know what it is. And you can't blame the teacher right? for that. I mean, if the yeah. teacher's doing a mat work class with 10 to 15 people, and someone comes in with an injury, it's very hard 
to get the flowing of a matwork class and deal with someone who has a specific problem, unless you're very, very experienced. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. some of the leisure centers you know, have classes up to 60. Yeah. 60, 6-0. Yeah. 6-0. Wow. Yeah. And so it's difficult, and you know, the two pounds a class or three pounds a class is lower cost. You know, and, and so these people think they're going to do the right thing. Yeah. And the poor teachers up there sweating, you know, yeah. trying to do something that's effective. Yeah. And it's difficult because it's the wrong place. Yeah. It's getting the person to the right place is the, is the challenge. And as somebody who's trained teachers, I think it's very hard in the field to be under that pressure where someone comes to you and says, I want to do Pilates to get better. I mean, the environment I work in is, is, is very luxury, so I might have somebody for four hours, poor thing. But, you know, they will do six to eight hours of rehab a day to get somebody right in, in the high-performance environment. To then expect some poor teacher to fix you you know, if they've got nine other people to look after. It's very difficult. And I think as a teacher, you need to be very uh, kind to yourself and very clear in the negotiation with your clients that if they come to you expecting Pilates to do all these wonderful rehab things, you have to be very clear about what's possible with their budget, with your time, with the arrangements you can have. Because yeah. otherwise you take the pressure and then you disappoint them and then it gets to be very, it can be difficult. Well, yeah. our message is always know your limitations. I mean, yeah. if you're a physio, great. But if you're not a physio, find a physio. You know, yeah. Physios have many limitations as well. Yeah. We have to <laughs> physically, <laughs> yeah, yes. but they have access to a little bit more information. So I think it's 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 out there. There's a lot of pressure on the teachers to know everything, and no, as we know, we, nobody knows everything. You know, and I think yeah. that's really the big message is know we know what you're teaching and who you're teaching it to. Yeah, and yeah, and I think know your limitations. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm, I'm sure many of you do uh, pre-screening and pre-questionnaires and pre-class settings and what have you, which are, I think are, are very important. But I, I also think it highlights the key difference between a class and a one-to-one -one session. Mm. They're, they're not the same. Um, and I think it's important that we understand group exercise is fantastic, but it also has limitations. And certainly from the rehab side, you know, one-to-one -one is where you can you know, really understand and make those differences. And I, I, I do think, I mean, I'm sure you guys all do it, but I do think we just have to really take pride in what the, the, the method is and what we can do and, and not be afraid to tell people, you know what, you do need one-to-ones. A class isn't the right environment for you right now. We can get there, but that concept of, of getting people into those one-to-ones, I think, is important. Um, well, also, can I add about... Uh, I'm not from a medical background. I'm from a dance background. So what I've surrounded myself with is uh, physios, osteopaths, doctors, who, if someone comes in and I'm not absolutely sure what's going on, I will, recommend, I will say, no, I'm not going to work with you until you've seen a physio or a doctor and I want a report back from them. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that then, I, then you know. So I do not think non-medical people should diagnose at all. No. You may have an idea what the situation is, but we are not trained to diagnose problems. Yeah. And I think, uh, we can say something? No, as I say, taking it further, I think we need to respect each other and, and respect ourselves first, because I think the message of this convention is very powerful, but I don't think we have unity in the industry. I think there's a lot of infighting. If you look for any of the forums which I do, some on the, you know, the Trump and Clinton dialogues are nothing <laughs> compared to the dialogues that go between Pilates teachers on these forums. Yeah. And I'm looking going, what is going on? You know, we yeah. should respect each other, know Very each much. other's limitations. Yeah. You know, if you are not a group exercise teacher, don't teach groups. Yeah. If you're not a physio, don't be a physio. Yeah. You know, just recognize where we are, but we all need each other. Yeah. 
You know, it's a great tapestry, a great world we've got yeah. of, of access to. Yeah. But I think people get very blinkered. And that's why I love the message and this convention so much, is because it is a very strong message. My, my advice is do not do forums. <laughs> yes. No way. Well, I've been banned from some. The only with problem with forums, people don't know, they don't know who they're talking to, so they can be really evil. Oh, totally. And it's it's just. And sometimes I don't know what they do. Well, beyond forums, some it's people I wouldn't mention yeah. live on the forums. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, yeah. no, it's very destructive. Yeah. So mm. stay away from forums. True. Yes, but I'm going to take you on um, on the message there because I, I thank you for highlighting that, and it is a passion. But I would like to take it one step further in terms of knowing the limitations. It's all good and well for us, and, and I appreciate, and it's very kind for you to talk about the physio knowledge and the rehab side, but you know, the physios that are here in the room, I'm, I'm really reaching out to you that you have to understand how well can you teach movement and where is the industry. You have, you know, I'm very passionate about the transition from the rehab world into the movement world, into the wellness world. Um, and that's what I would love to see as much as I can, both within my organisation and within the Pilates <coughs> industry as well, is that um, it is the client that is the important thing. And, and yeah. uh, I've, we've heard today that that was your message yeah. right from the very early early stages. And so, well, yes, I, I think it's, it's very important that if somebody is in an injured state, they should be with somebody who understands the pathology, the mechanics, the pathomechanics of that. But also... We have to look from the physio world, look at our environment. Is that the, do, are we able to offer the environment and the services to get somebody into a fluid movement pattern where they're not, we're not asking them about that pain. We're asking them to move and to generate that movement. And you know, in the room here, you know, my you know, ideal is, is that there is that freedom of information that we trust each other enough that we can pass our clients back and forth. It's not a one-way system. It should be a transitional system through. And if anything comes out of this weekend, my goal is that work with the people in your rooms, listen to the presenters, um, you know, the physios that are here. I, I do very much hope you're looking at some of the more movement-based sessions and understanding the method from a movement point of view. And then some of you guys that maybe aren't as familiar with the pathology-specific stuff, you know, that's why we put it on, so you can have a, an insight into working with those different pathologies um, that will, will come out. All right. Um, thank you very, very much. I hope you guys have enjoyed this time. It's, it's very special to have these three people up on stage. So please give a round of applause. Well, there you go. What a, uh, a fascinating insight into some of the, the true legends of our industry. So I hope you enjoyed the chat that we had there with, with Alan, with Michael, with Suzanne. And I just want to close again by wishing all of you the very, very best over these next challenging four weeks ahead. We're here to help and advise as best we can. So if you have any other queries, questions, or anything that you need from us, send your requests in to info at appihealthgroup.com. Check out the website at appihealthgroup.com and have a look out for some of the great sort of offers, content, and advice we have coming through our memberships and our e-shots. If you're not a member of the Institute and you'd like to join up, then we'd welcome you on our various tiers, tier levels of membership that are there available for you. We're really devoted to our community. We want to help you, we want to inspire you, and we want to hear from you. So please give us your thoughts, give us your comments, and any ideas that you want in podcasts moving forwards.
as I said on the last podcast, we're hoping to have um, our master trainer um, join us today, Leslie Abrahams. Um, but I've decided to go ahead with this sort of more urgent podcast uh, today. Uh, Leslie's one of us out there managing multiple practices, figuring out what to do. Um, and so I, I thought it best to leave him to what he needs to do to get through these next four weeks. And then we'll invite him back in to share his stories with us as soon as possible. I've got some other great guests lined up over the coming months. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. I wish you all the very, very best. And we will speak again in a month's time. Bye for now.